Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our program know, each and every week I introduce the Torah portion, known in Hebrew as the parasha, the weekly reading that is offered in synagogues throughout the Jewish world. This Shabbat uh, and the follow and this Shabbat, the Torah portion that will be read introduces us to the fourth book of the Torah, the fourth book of the five books of Moses, known as Bamidbar. It It begins with Numbers 1 and continues through Numbers 4. Let me give you a brief synopsis of the parasha before I introduce our guest to talk about some of the essential issues that the Torah portion raises for us. The Torah portion begins by telling us that in the Sinai Desert, God says to conduct a census of the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses counts over 600,000 men of draftable age, 20 to 60 years, in the tribe of Levi, numbering, according to the Torah, nearly 22,000 males age one month and older, is counted separately. The Levites are to serve and the sanctuary. They replace the firstborn, whose number they approximated, since they were disqualified when they participated in the worshiping of the golden calf back in the book of Exodus. The 273 firstborn who lacked a Levite to replace them had to pay a five-shekel ransom to redeem themselves. When the people finally broke camp, the three Levite clans dismantled and transported the sanctuary and reassembled it at the center of the next encampment. They then erected their own tents around it. The Kohothites, who carried the sanctuary's vessels, the Ark and the Menorah, in their specially designed coverings on their shoulders, camped to its south. The Gershonites, in charge of its tapestries and roof coverings, to the west. And the families of Me'ere, who transported its walls, panels, and pillars to the north. Before the sanctuary's entranceway to its east, were the tents of Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons. Beyond the Levite circle, the twelve tribes camped in four groups of three tribes each. To the east were Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. To the south, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. To the west, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And to the north, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. This formation, the Torah tells us, was kept also while traveling. Each tribe had its own nasi, prince or leader, and its own flag with tribal color and emblem. There are a number of interesting components of this week's Torah portion, and with me 
to discuss them is Rabbi Rosalind Gold, who was ordained a rabbi in 1978 from the New York campus of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, where her major area of interest was Jewish liturgy. In 2001, she earned her Doctorate of Ministry degree from Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and was awarded the Doctor of Divinity degree from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 2003. Upon her retirement in 2004, Rabbi Gold became the Rabbi Emerita of the Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation, a congregation she had served for 23 years. Rabbi Gold is active in her rabbinic organization, the Central Conference of American Rabbis. She served for four years as chair of the organization's uh, Committee on Ethics and Appeals. She was the first woman rabbi to serve on the Placement Commission. She also has served in numerous other capacities representing her congregation and the organization. In 2006, she was appointed to the Fairfax County Commission on Organ and Tissue Donation. She recently was named the coordinator of the Brickner Fellows Program of Reform Judaism Religious Action Center, where she is working with colleagues from different denominations on effective social action programming. It is a pleasure to welcome Rabbi Gold to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Good morning. Uh, I hope that you are well and that uh, you have some interesting insights to help us with, with regard to the Torah portion. So let's begin right away with the name of the Torah portion. In English, it's called in ba numbers, but in Hebrew, Bamidbar. Why are they so different and what do they represent in their differences? Well, they're different because um, Torah portions are generally named by the first, uh, not by an idea, but by the first significant word in the sentence. So if it starts out that the children of Israel were in the desert, you have Bamidbar, um, the Hebrew name uh, of, of the, the book and the Torah portion. Um, in English, we tend to name things uh, kind of thematically, like what is this book about? Uh, and it starts off, as you said, with a census that's taken of uh, those who are capable of bearing arms. Um, so we have a census, <clears throat> pardon me, a census, we have numbers um, as we count the Israelites. So it's, it's pretty common um, in, uh, like with, the book of Exodus, for instance, and that first Torah portion in Exodus, we have the name of the book in Hebrew, which is Shemot, names, because it starts off, these are the names of the children of Israel who went down to Egypt. And then, uh, but in, in Hebrew, it's just called, uh, or in, in English, it's Exodus because it deals with the Exodus from Egypt. So that's pretty typical in the naming of of books and Torah portions in the Bible, in the Torah particularly. Now, the books of the Torah, um, 
weren't originally named in English. Uh, that must have come much later. So in what language other than Hebrew did the names derive from? Uh, well, certainly some of them derive from Latin. Um, so I, I would think mostly Latin. But you got me on that one. I am not absolutely positive. But I know that like uh, there are Latin names for the uh, good for the for books. Okay, I didn't mean to uh, ask a question to stump you. I just wanted the listeners to reflect on the fact that um, the Hebrew text had uh, a number of different languages that it had been translated into before um, it was translated into English. Uh, and so these English names usually are uh, derivative from some other language. Um, and I wasn't sure myself whether it was Latin or Greek that the names came from. Um, so we know that the names reflect two different intentionalities. Um, the Hebrew name concerns the um, counting, and the um, the English name concerns the counting, and the Hebrew name concerns the wilderness. Um, so what is the whole idea of wilderness, um, though the name of the book comes from the first sentence and the first significant word, as you suggested, but this idea of wilderness seems to be preeminent, uh, throughout the book. Right. I think that, uh, that this is this sort of unstructured period where the people are just going from place to place to place and schlepping the, the tabernacle with them um, and uh, meeting people who weren't happy to see them as they pass through the land. Um, so I, I think we tend to think, you hear the word wilderness, I think that for many of us, we think of it as a bleak place, a place, place of death. I tend to think of a hot place. Maybe I'm thinking of deserts rather than wilderness. Um, but this sense of, I, I am imagining them traveling around, not knowing where they were going. Um, I mean, they, they knew there was some place they were going, but they didn't know what it was or where it was or how long it would take them to get there. Uh, this Just this sense of traveling around in this place where it, there's not a lot of apparent life and growth and promise. And yet, um, I have learned over the years that a desert, that a wilderness can also be a place that is beautiful and teeming with life. Um, you think of little desert plants that grow and creatures that live there um, and interesting formations of sand that change all the time because of the wind. Um, so I think there's a real uh, two-sidedness to that word wilderness or desert because it can it can evoke images of of uh, vastness and solitude and beauty and quiet. I mean, imagine being able to look up at the stars without any lights that got in the way, and how beautiful that must have been. Um, so that, that concept of wilderness and also, uh, the concept of, uh, hidden life, that there is life there, 
that it takes a while sometimes to find it, um, but it's there. You you indicated as you began to speak about the notion of wilderness that this book of the Torah seems to be a little uh, short of significant stories. There doesn't seem to be any great miracle stories um, the way we had in the book of Exodus, and certainly the book of Leviticus um was extensive in its coverage of the priesthood and the responsibilities of the priesthood and the place of the sacrificial cult. So um, are you suggesting that perhaps um, the Israelites needed to chill out a little after these two major books um, and regroup before they finally reach the uh, promised land? Perhaps, although I don't think of so. Well, I guess the desert can get cold. Um, uh, I, I think that I, I know that when I was uh, busy uh, in, an, in my pre-retirement years, I would always think of let's just get through numbers so that we can finally get to Deuteronomy, which is much more exciting. And yet there are some pretty significant things that happen um, in the book of Numbers. We have the story of... of uh, Hello, Korah and the rebellion of Korah, which is a little later on there in in Numbers, but that's a, I think a significant story, um, and I, it's very significant certainly from a woman's perspective or a feminist perspective, um, and it's just the story of the uh, the daughters of a guy named Salochad who managed to get a portion of the inheritance of their family for themselves because their father dies and there are no male heirs and otherwise the the family inheritance would have gone to the next nearest male relatives and the five daughters complain to Moses and say, wow, this is really not fair. And uh, Moses agrees with them. So it's not a perfect ending to the story because if there were males around, the males would have inherited, but they managed to get themselves in line for the family inheritance um, if there are no males. So that's, that's a pretty significant story. Is, is that the first time that women in the Torah seem to have some um, power over the uh, prescribed rules? Um, I believe so. I can't think of anything. That, certainly in terms of inheritance, it is. Um, so that that is significant. Um, and we have Miriam, who sadly dies in Chapter 20 of the Book of, uh, of Numbers. And she plays, a, obviously, an important role just in, in saving Moses and being with the people. And, of course, the, the Midrash, the kind of literary commentary, says that um, she was it was on her behalf that God provided water for the people, um, because when she dies, all of a sudden, the wells that have popped up in the desert suddenly disappear. So the death of Miriam is, uh, is, is a big deal as well. So we do have some women that, uh, that play an important role in the book of Numbers, even though they are not counted in the census, thank you very much, um, <laughs> because the census at the beginning of Numbers only uh, seems to be interested in uh, 
men who will be able to fight. So women and children and old people and very young people are not counted. Um, kind of which is an interesting, another kind of way of looking at this Torah portion, which is called numbers. So the question of counting in the census and also the question of who counts and being counted. Um, and we certainly don't have any women uh, being counted in that census, um, which is kind of sad. Yeah, I mean, I think it does continue one of the great um, challenges of reading Torah, that um, we speak of the sons of Jacob, and he had a daughter who seems to have disappeared after one episode, uh, namely the book of the namely Dina, who uh, has a very um, unfortunate occurrence. Um, and then disappears, it appears, um, and everybody then who is of importance is the son of Jacob, and uh, the priesthood is um, um, a genetic following only of males. Um, so you're probably right, the two stories in the book of Numbers, the daughters of Zelifahad and the um, honor that's given to Miriam at her death— um, seem to stand out as anomalies in this book. Uh, happy anomalies. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I just want to also throw in this sense that we are in another period of counting that isn't, uh, that isn't in this Torah portion, but we are in the period of counting the Omer, the, the harvest or the barley harvest. <laughs> Um, and it's a time that we count uh, the days and the weeks in between Passover and Shavuot, the, the festival of weeks, which is coming up uh, soon um, in the calendar right now. So um, uh, there's that sense of counting during this period, this Omer period. And every day, traditionally, we do count what day of the Omer it is, and uh, acknowledge that we are getting closer, going from our um, our redemption to uh, a sense of the Torah, which we celebrate on Shavuot, the giving of the Torah. Um, so there is that kind of, it's a, a listing, I think, going from physical, physical liberation to uh, spiritual liberation. Um, so that's an important other thing that we think about now because of this period of counting the Omer. Um, I should, I guess, mention for some of our non-Jewish listeners that as Rabbi Gold has indicated, there is this notion of counting 50 days from Passover to the biblical holiday of Shavuot, and that is paralleled in the Christian tradition with the Feast of Pentecost, which is counted as 50 days from Easter uh, to the gift of the um, Spirit of God returning uh, to the apostles who find themselves in Jerusalem for the festival of Shavuot. And this year, Pentecost and Shavuot fall on the exact same weekend. 
It's one of the unusual aspects of calendarization, which is um, something we've talked about on other shows, um, and we don't have um, nearly the time to um, address it completely this morning. Um, Rabbi Gold, there's another, since you've introduced the number 50 and the counting of 50, there's also another uh, counting of 50, which seems to uh, be important uh, in the history of the Jewish people, especially since we've been talking about the role of women in the book of Numbers. Um, and perhaps you want to share with our listeners uh, the special anniversary that is observed this year uh, in uh, the Jewish world. Yeah, this is a very important world, uh, year in the Jewish world. This year marks uh, the 50th year since the ordination of Rabbi Sally Presand, who was the first woman uh, ordained by a, a seminary. There were other women who served in leadership roles before, but or who got private ordination. But uh, Rabbi Presand was ordained, uh, as any other Reform rabbi would be uh, here in, uh, well, not every rabbi is ordained here in the United States, but she was ordained here. Uh, in the United States, and this is her 50th uh, anniversary of ordination, which was June 3rd of 1972, um, and it's a big deal. I mean, she was number one, and now there are like hundreds and hundreds of women who are rabbis, me included, who followed uh, through the doors that she opened. So it's very significant that we are celebrating that this year, another 50 to celebrate. And while uh, Rabbi Presan was uh, ordained and took the title of rabbi in the reform movement, the most liberal movement, we now have other movements in North American and European uh, Jewish uh, denominations or perspectives that also ordain women. So she uh, opened up the floodgates, um, though some would not use the word floodgates, uh, given the numbers, but let's assume that she opened the dike. Um, and perhaps you want to help our listeners understand why there was this antipathy to uh, ordaining women. Well, as you have pointed out uh, previously, there is Everything got done by men. The priests were all men. The leaders were men. Moses was a man. Aaron was a man. And everything was passed down to men. I mean, after Moses died, the the leadership goes to Joshua and, and uh, you know, all the way through men. And it was, I mean, certainly before Rabbi Presant came along, there were other women, uh, both in Europe and uh, in the United States who wanted to become rabbis, uh, who studied to become rabbis. Some were allowed to study, one in particular who was who went through the entire rabbinic program at the Hebrew Union College and then was only allowed, uh, given a master's degree and allowed to teach in a school. So um, it wasn't until the reform movement finally realized um, that we needed women, we needed to hear women-identified uh, voices, um, that women had the ability and the desire, and that we were really cutting ourselves off from a lot of wisdom and a lot of uh, interpretation 
by by saying, well, it's lovely, you can study and whatever, but we're not going to give you the title rabbi. While the Torah doesn't place um, women other than Miriam, and it's questionable whether Miriam is in a position of leadership in the text itself, um, in later books, we have judges who are women, and we have stories of uh, women um, as heroines, um, and certainly we have the Book of Ruth, which is read on Shavuot, in which Ruth um, serves as a wonderful role model. Um, do you think there was something more um, that was an inhibitor um, to women moving into positions of authority within Jewish tradition? Or was it just a reflection of the male-oriented society in which Jews found themselves? Well, I think it was that for sure, but also that in Jewish law, um, that women are not required to do many of the, uh, follow many of the commandments that men are required to do because their role was to be at home, to be mothers, to take care of children, to provide family support. Um, and so women never got those same command, I mean, when we think of the commandments, we think of 10 commandments and, but there are lots, there are 613 commandments that are delineated in the, in the Torah. Um, and women are not required to do all of them. Some of them they are, some of them they are not. And in Jewish law, if you're not required to do something, then you, uh, how do we explain this? If you're not required to do something, you can't help someone else do it. Um, so it's when you get beyond the, the point of, uh, uh, I'm, I'm getting bongled up in my own words here because it's complicated to explain. Um, if you can't do it for someone else, then how can you be a leader in the community? I, I would say would be the way that traditional Jewish law would look at that. Um, but when you think about it, a rabbi, uh, a rabbi is a counselor, a rabbi can lead services, a rabbi can do all kinds of things that don't necessarily uh, involve uh, fulfilling the requirements for someone else. So a, ra a person can be a rabbi, um, surely, and do the things that a rabbi does um, without being a man. Well, that's certainly true. And I guess um, as you were speaking about Jewish tradition, um, it struck me that um, this notion of if you're not required to do something um, and you do it out of um, interest or desire, but not requirement, seems uh, that tradition places less of a value on it. Um, that men are required to all the commandments, women to a lesser amount, and even if they do them all, um, somehow they don't achieve the same level of um, virtue um, because they're only doing it uh, not out of obligation but choice. Um, and that's perhaps not something we understand easily. Right. I think that goes very much against Western thought. 
um, right. that uh, um, doing something because it's the nice thing to do somehow feels better to us than doing it because we have to. Um, right. So I, I think ideally we do it because we have to, but also because we want to. Um, but ultimately in Jewish law, doing it because you are supposed to do it, um, you get more brownie points for that. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Roz Gold, Rabbi Emerita of Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation in the United States. It was a pleasure to have her help us understand the Parashah of Bamidbar. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show on the chri.ca website or on iTunes. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day. 